good research by its very nature should feel actionable. It should feel like, holy shit, cannot wait to implement these insights, cannot wait to you know change our customer's experience or change the product experience or change our positioning and messaging or change our the way we're introducing our product. I think the situations where it doesn't get actioned is unfortunately more a product of team dynamic prioritization. Maybe, you know, somebody on the marketing team, we're maybe biased where we see a lot of marketers do like even good research, but they can't bring it across the finish line because they didn't socialize it enough prior to doing the research. They didn't involve the right stakeholders. They learn amazing things, but they can't champion it internally for a number of reasons. They don't have the influence. I think the biggest culprit there is that they didn't involve the stakeholders they should have involved earlier in the in the project. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forget the Funnel podcast, where our goal is to help you as a SaaS leader finally stop guessing, understand your best customers, and drive more predictable recurring revenue. Hey everyone, it's Gia. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of the Forget the Funnel podcast. In episode two, Claire and I talked about what happens when product and marketing teams make decisions about how to grow without actually knowing who their best customers are or what matters to them. To recap that episode, it's not good, but it makes sense. The vast majority of teams don't have quality customer research to rely on. So in this episode, we're going to talk about why that is. Sure, there is resistance to research, and we'll talk about that. But even worse, what happens when businesses do prioritize customer research, but they screw it up anyway, thus perpetuating the vicious cycle of resistance to research in the first place. So we're going to dig into why this happens, from misaligned goals between teams to wasting time with research that isn't actionable, and why looking to win-loss analysis or UX research or big quantitative surveys can leave you feeling like you have more questions than you have answers. But we won't leave you hanging. Of course, we're also going to talk about and share what good customer research looks like, the kind of research that gives you and your team the clarity and confidence needed to turn customer insight into actual revenue growth. But before that, a quick message. For well over a decade, Claire and I have been helping teams at companies like Bitly, Wistia, Postman, Linktree, Invoice Simple, Sprout Social, and Autobooks, stop guessing, gain more clarity around what matters to customers, and dramatically improve conversions. In 2019, Claire and I developed the customer-led growth framework that to date has helped thousands of founders, marketing, and product leaders get out of the weeds, think more strategically about their product marketing, and meaningfully impact revenue growth. And we wrote a book about it so that you can too. Rather than a toolbox, this book gives you a system to follow so that you can choose the tools that are actually right for your company, your team, and your customers. This book will help you make better decisions about what to implement, when, and how. And once you're done with the book, there's a 110-page workbook that'll help you connect the dots between learning customer-led growth and implementing it within your company. Before you waste another minute or dollar frantically taking action, and if you're honest, guessing, Search for Forget the Funnel on Amazon and grab your copy of the paperback, ebook, or audiobook. We're starting with this problem that teams operate based on assumptions. 
I think we have a plethora of examples of companies that we've talked to and teams we've talked to that are operating in assumptions. But we were talking previously about a call you were on a couple of days ago with the PM who got into this situation. And it's probably worth digging into that. Yeah, I was on a call with a product manager at a company we've worked with prior. And caveat up front, I don't fault this person at all. I think it's a very real testament to just how pervasive this issue of operating based on assumptions is. This person's busy. There's an entire product roadmap they're responsible for leading the implementation of. And we were delivering a particular nurture sequence to a customer segment we had worked with them to do research on. That research was done a couple of months ago, and now we're in implementation mode, which is great. And on this call, this product manager was asking questions about this deliverable that could all have been answered by the research we had already done. Like, why are we leading with this particular value? Are these the right words? Will customers actually understand those words? And I had to take them back to the document and, and remind them that, yes, we have made very customer-led, very informed, data-driven decisions based on customer research. And this person was like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, like mentally, like smacking myself in the forehead. Again, I don't fault this person, but it was just like, oh, my goodness, we've already done the work. <laughs> so... Imagine that amplified when the work of understanding why customers hire your product hasn't been done, uh, I guess, is the place to start. <laughs> right. And how much more guessing is even happening. But again, to your point, people get really busy and it can be hard even for those of us that preach customer-led to forget. It's very, very easy to fall into the trap of doing and working and focusing on producing and executing that sometimes we ask ourselves questions that we already have the answers to. If we just go back to our tools and resources that we took the time to produce and, and learn and, and leverage, it can be very easy to fall into the trap of forgetting that it's there or forgetting to center back around the customer. And I mean, that's like, should I try this marketing strategy? And it's like, well, what's the best strategy for your customer? I can't answer that yeah. unless I know more about your customer. Like, oh, right. Yeah, I guess that's true. And so yeah. anyways, it's an easy trap to fall into, even for us. To drive this home just a teeny bit more, this PM had actually gone out and captured what direct competitors were doing in their email series. And they're like, well, this is what the competition is doing over here. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But nobody in, nobody talked about using those products in our research that we had done. They're not like your customers are not looking at us. Yes, 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 yes. That's just, that's very real too. So let's talk about the reasons that this can happen because we are all trying our best, right? We're all trying our best when we're when you're, when we are in these growth roles, whether we're on the product side or the marketing side or in customer success, etc. And I was at an event just last week where a very well intentioned CEO wanted to embark on the process of unpacking why customers came to his solution. So this was a CEO who had bought a SaaS company, had acquired a product that already had thousands of paying customers. And I, I was on a panel and he raised his hand and he was like, this is all making sense. I'm going to like my plan when I get back to the office is I'm going to start with a survey. So what are the questions I should ask? And it was it was evident in how he was going to approach it that he he had no idea how to go about gathering information and he 
he actually didn't even know what he needed to learn. And starting with not knowing how to run research to get you the answers you're looking for, I think is a, a core of the problem. I guess maybe boiled down when we want to learn from our customers, but we don't know how to run that research, we do bad research, which gets no results that we can apply. And then it creates this kind of bad taste in people's mouths of like, customer research is a waste of time, or we already know who our customers are. Do you think that he just assumed that surveys were the methodology that he should employ? Like why, why surveys? Did he assume that like interviews are too time consuming or that he didn't, didn't have the skill set to run interviews effectively and just assume that like, well, surveys are the next best thing. Like how did he land on surveys? Yeah. So I, I did ask him why surveys and he said, well, it, it just seems like the easiest way to learn from as many customers as possible. Right. And another panelist actually chimed in and said, I would not recommend surveying everyone in your customer base because you're going to be learning from people who may be super unhappy and you're going to conflate what they say with people who are happy. You should really be thinking about boiling it down and only learning from a specific subset of people who exhibit like best customer behavior. So that idea of quantity, I want to learn from everybody possible, was driving this decision to run surveys. By the end of the discussion, he actually was like, oh, yeah, it actually would make a lot more sense to learn from a handful of really, really good bit customers versus everybody. But without that Q&A, without that discussion, like he'd be off to the races. <laughs> totally. uh, I've seen that happen so many times where a company, a very well-intentioned and like, we want to listen to customers and we care what they think. And we, you know, we want to hear what they have to say. And we know that this, you know, we know we should be doing research and they launch a survey. And I will say like, I have been on a team that has done this, let alone like witnessing other companies who have other teams that have done this as well. Well, they'll like, okay, marketing will come up with a handful of questions that they want to ask customers. Again, like all customers paying. Generally, I think that people understand like we should be learning from paying customers. Customers implies paying. So marketing will come up with a couple of questions and then they need to get some sort of permission or green light from an adjacent team, sometimes customer success, sometimes leadership, sometimes product, depends on how the team is structured. And then what happens is they are asking very sort of more marketing focused questions, maybe something about the buying decision or or something to sort of pull out some information about like how they discovered us or, you know, what channels, what blogs do they read? Like some of those more classic sort of marketing questions. And then they go to, they, they frame these questions around to understand customers out in the market or like what publications they read. And then it goes to some other team. And then that team is like, well, we also need to learn. Like, what's your favorite part of dealing with a customer success team? Or do you like this feature or not? Or is this useful to you or not? And then all of a sudden you've got customer success and product and marketing all bandwagoning onto this survey, the all asking very... Oh, I was like, and then you've got this Franken survey that's too many questions long that nobody's going to take the time to respond to. That's right. Yeah. But there's so many things wrong with what I just said, right? Like you just mentioned, it's a long survey. That's a big problem. But also a lot of times when this happens, that's sort of also an indication that nobody's sort of protecting the survey, which also indicates that the questions themselves might be problematically worded, which happens so much, right? Like they're leading questions or they're overly complex. Or again, like, and I know we say this a lot, it's 
hard to read the label from inside the jar. The same is true when you're writing survey questions. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to write a confusing question when you're not experienced in these types of surveys, let alone the complexity that gets added by like the varying sort of goals for like marketing or success or support or product or who knows what else, other team, potentially sales, maybe all with conflicting priorities, but also you end up with this like Frankenstein, very long survey. And also you end up with this kind of unowned survey that is also confusing to fill out even from it at the individual question level. So there's all kinds of ways that surveys can go awry. I know I have been on teams that have fallen victim to this. I've witnessed surveys. I've been on the receiving end. When, I know when we've worked with a couple of companies, we said like, have you done customer research? Because we're happy to take a look at the research you've done before and maybe we can get value from it. And then we see the responses and we're like, oh boy, unfortunately, this isn't always usable. It's a, it's a good data point, but it isn't always usable. So there, there's a lot of ways for surveys to go sideways, let alone research projects on the whole. And, you know, I am almost hesitant to be recording a conversation that is so in the weeds and so nerdy and almost like academic about the principles of running good research because who fucking cares? But I think this conversation has to be recorded because it's so easy to fuck it up. It, somebody at the decision making level needs to realize how much rigor should be applied to this process in order to create a useful outcome rather than having a team waste their time or paying a firm and wasting money to get data that you can't do anything with and that doesn't have a positive impact on your product roadmap or your positioning and your messaging, your marketing strategy, all of those important things that it's supposed to influence. Yeah. Generally, these sort of homegrown customer research projects, if I could call them that, are problematic because there's nobody with research experience running them or, which is basically the example that I just gave, or it's a different situation where there are researchers in the company, but these researchers typically work in the product team and they're like UX researchers, at least in my experience. I don't know that I've ever worked with a team that had a researcher that was not on the product team. Have you? Well, before I directly answer that, unpack that for me a little bit more. Like, What is the problematic nature of internal research folks who, who do know what they're doing being solely within the product team? Like, what's the issue there? What I've seen happen is that these researchers are very good at a typically like UX research and highly skilled, highly, I'm in awe of what they do, truthfully. But in that situation, similar to the prior one, the so what and the what are the bigger, larger implications for the company are sort of missed or, or lost. Now, you can layer UX research on top of great customer research and like you're laughing. That is fantastic. It's just that I've never witnessed that. Typically, it's UX research doing a great job at UX research, but they're missing the forest for the trees. Their focus is very, UX research is very, very different from customer research, especially the customer research that we're describing, which is like, understanding who your best customer is, understanding what matters to them, understanding why they choose you over the all the other options. That's not what re UX research is designed to do. That's also not what market research is necessarily designed to do. So there's, you know, the different types of research that, I mean, I don't want to, I'm the last one that should be nerding out on the different types of research because this is not my lane. But I think there is generally a misunderstanding about what the different types of research are for. 
I'm super glad you pulled that apart because as you were speaking, it reminded me of a company we worked with just a couple of months ago who came to us having already done Jobs to be done research. They paid for an experienced user researcher, a UX researcher to do that work. And in doing so, they came to us because, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting the, the CEO, the UX researcher they worked with ran really good interviews around product and got some helpful information around feature usage, product strategy, did not really spend time in those interviews on why people switched away from a prior solution or switched away from doing nothing. And so they they were like, thanks, but all of the marketing questions we have, all of the customer acquisition questions we have are still unanswered. <laughs> and so that obviously very deeply informed the, the research we did with them as a team to make sure that we were really unpacking more of that larger customer experience narrative versus just product usage. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes really interesting too when those two, again, this is a bit of a a bit of a rabbit hole, but like where those two types of research intersect and support each other and that you can build off them, which can be really effective. Same thing with, we were talking about this earlier, like win-loss analysis, a question that we get, I mean, speaking for myself, anytime I've spoken on this topic, somebody undoubtedly asks, wouldn't it be valuable to learn from the customers that we lost or the customers that we didn't get? Which kind of blows my mind a little bit. I'm I'm like half impressed that they're thinking in that way because that shows that demonstrates that they're like thinking about research and the value that it can provide and the insight that it can provide, which is great. But the answer is always the same, which is like, until you know who your best customers are, there is no point in learning from the customers you couldn't acquire. Once you understand all of that about who your best customers are now, then figuring out who didn't we acquire as a customer that we should have acquired as a customer versus the problematic nature of starting with win-loss analysis, which is learning from the customers you probably shouldn't have acquired and maybe wildly problematic to acquire in the first place. So why would you try to solve for them? So that foundational research happening first versus diving head first into win-loss analysis when you don't even know what win should be. Yeah, you need to know what a great fit customer looks like and why they choose you so that you don't accidentally in a win-loss analysis round of research, for example, so you don't accidentally optimize for people who shouldn't have become your customers in the first place. So I also want to touch on research that is done and maybe even done well, but then never actioned on. Like it's, it's never really socialized beyond like one particular team. Well, well, I mean, look, research that's done well hopefully it's really obvious what to do with it next. I mean, I shouldn't even say hopefully because research that's done well means that there was a clear goal set in place when you conducted the research. You were learning from the right people and you learned what you were hoping to learn. Therefore, good research by its very nature should feel actionable. It should feel like, holy shit, cannot wait to implement these insights, cannot wait to you know, change our customer's experience or change the product experience or change our positioning and messaging or change our the way we're introducing our product. Like the, it should, good research feels actionable. I think the situations where it doesn't get actioned is unfortunately more a product of team dynamic, prioritization. That becomes a little bit, it's harder to articulate because I feel like that's very situational. Maybe, you know, somebody on the marketing team, we're maybe biased where we see a lot of marketers do like even good research, but they can't bring it across the finish line because they didn't socialize it enough. 
prior to doing the research. They didn't involve the right stakeholders. They learn amazing things, but they can't champion it internally for a number of reasons. They don't have the influence they need to. I think the biggest culprit there is that they didn't involve the stakeholders they should have involved earlier in the in the project. And that goes beyond a, a, you know, a criticizing a marketing team. That, that's with regard to any team who's trying to better understand customers and doesn't have the right the right like executive sponsors on board and and championing the work. Sponsors a good word. I'm glad that you use that word actually because that there's somebody that can champion that work internally, but if that highly skilled person at running that research does push that work forward and there's no sponsor to help advocate for it, remove blockers, and this happens, I will say even at the director or VP level, if somebody in the C-suite if there isn't somebody in the C-suite to help champion this across the cross-functional sort of leadership team, then it it will live in marketing and only live in marketing or will live in product and only live in product. Never, you know, make that cross into sales or marketing or product or CS, depending on how it could be leveraged. And I think that that's, that, that's the saddest possible outcome when great research is done, but you can't make that leap from marketing into product or into sales or, or whatever. I think that's probably where things go, where good research goes to die. Yeah. I was going to say like in a dusty file somewhere, like, like a digital, somebody's sad siphon off little like Google drive folder. <laughs> yeah, totally. I would say though, like the vast majority of the time, the problem is not quality research, not seeing the light of day. It's more thinking you have quality research, but it's not actually quality research. And it's research that's just leading the team to ask. It just begs more questions um, yeah. and doesn't get the team the answers that they need. Because again, if it's good research, it will feel really actionable. Maybe we should talk about like what what does good research look like? Because we've really answered the like ways to fuck it up. And I like going back to that guy who had acquired a SaaS company and now wanted to better understand the customer base, really, really sharp clarity on what you're trying to learn is at the core. If there is not a super articulate statement of this is what we want to uncover, then go back to square one. So like when we're working with teams, a core tenet is usually understand your best customers, but more specifically understand the different reasons that triggered people to look for a solution like yours and eventually choose yours. That's always where we're starting. Obviously, there's lots of other reasons to run research, as you brought up a couple of times. But if you don't have a really core reason for doing it and a, an understanding of what you're trying to learn, then all those other problems flow to the surface. So mishmashing together a Franken survey or learning from the wrong people or any of the other issues that we that we harped on. <laughs> Yeah, I think if a company is finds themselves realizing that they're operating based on assumptions or or guessing, typically that's a sign that foundational research hasn't been done. And so don't go to win-loss analysis. Don't go to big quant surveys. Don't go to UX researchers. Get the sort of foundational understanding first and foremost, which is the, the research methodology that we highly advocate for, obviously, is like the jobs to be done methodology and sort of understanding exactly what you're describing, like that sort of core struggle and uncovering differentiated value, uncovering what that job to be done is, and then layering on top of it. So, okay, understanding the, what are we trying to accomplish with the research is definitely like square one of conducting good research. What else? 
everything else is informed by that. So if we decide, I'm walking through like the way that, that we do this as a team, like if we decide that we want to uncover with a company within your best customer base. And when I say best, what I, what I mean is happy paying recent, right? And we want to understand why those happy paying recent people looked for a solution and chose yours. Then the, the people we learn from, like the group gets much more focused. So happy even is, is a bit problematic. Happy means a lot of things. I think paying is pretty straightforward. I think recent is relatively easy to explain. The happy piece is the one that definitely deserves a little bit more unpacking. So paying means paid more than once. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, especially if we're talking about SaaS or recurring revenue business, we're talking about customers who have paid for your product for in more than one sort of cycle. So if it's monthly, then they've paid at least twice, which kind of toes the line between happy and paying, but still like they've actually put money down and made the decision to invest in your solution. Recent also what that means, which is they've been around for long enough that they're getting some sort of continued value, but not so long that they don't remember what life was like before. So depending on the length of your sales cycle, depending on you know a couple of factors, that might mean you know, no older than three months, six months, nine months, you know, in some scenarios where we're talking about really highly complex products and highly complex companies, we might go back as far as maybe a year, but that's really, we don't want to go that much further because recency is really important. Remembering as viscerally as possible, what it felt like to have the problem that your solution solves. That reason for recency is important. And also the evolution of your product and your position in the market and the competitive landscape being as, as close to it is now are all very important, right? Learning from someone who made a buying decision pre-COVID versus post-COVID could be completely different. We're in a completely different economic time to depending. And then happy is the one that, I don't know, we could probably do a whole podcast episode on that one. Yeah, <laughs> We probably well, should. Let's, let's transition it to continued value. So within our team, we think about a couple of key moments of value that a customer has to reach to be ready to adopt your product long-term. First value is that people call it the aha moment, the, the first peek at proof that your solution can do what they need. Value realization is, I've recently been saying they, they got to first value and then they were able to check everything else off their spec sheet. Okay, also it does this, 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 this. My boss is going to ask about that. Okay, cool. It does all those other things too. <laughs> yeah, like the thing that I needed solving when I came to you in the first place, I know it's going to be solved now or it is solved now. Yeah. And then continued value is really more of like a rolling metric in many cases. So it's, it's whatever product behavior they are doing that shows that there is habitual usage around the product, that they are getting whatever the value of your product is. So in some, but not very many cases, we can say logging in, but that's very, like- Ooh, That's like, a future podcast episode too, yeah. Yeah, the death of uh, monthly, weekly, daily active users as a metric is a whole episode. In most cases, it's not logging in. <laughs> yeah, but I want to drive that point home a little yeah. bit more to the continued value, like the ongoing engagement, that frequency of usage, that habit building. If that is not, if you're not solving for that with your product, you're not in business. So we're, we're talking about recurring revenue businesses, predominantly SaaS, but any subscription-based business lives and dies based on continued value, that long-term relationship. And so 
you need to understand what continued value looks like for your customer, not just value realization, not just product activation. And a lot of companies, and I say this and it sounds so obvious and it sounds so straightforward, but it's easy to lose sight of that when you're in it and you're like in the weeds of product development or you know producing marketing or sales or customer success experiences where so much emphasis is on like activation and not on happy, healthy retention. What does a happy, healthy customer sort of look like? So getting all the way back to happy, healthy, that's bringing us back to this happy, paying, recent sort of criteria for who do we want to learn from in this research, which is a highly important part of running successful foundational research like we're describing. To use like a real product metric, there's a super cool founder of a really cool company that we just started working with. And they're their product is it converts academic digital resources, like so like academic papers. If you upload them, it converts them into an audiobook. And so if you are in academia, for example, and you're working on your doctorate or something, you can digest all this content on the go. And logging in is fucking pointless. But where we've landed with what they think is continued value has uploaded a certain number of files within the past X time frame. So Continued value for your product is always unique, but bringing it back to those segmentation criteria, paying, recent, and getting whatever that moment is, learning from those folks is really critical. Anyway. Okay. So understanding the goal of what we're trying to accomplish and making sure that you are getting clarity if it does not yet exist, which is basically the assumption that we're going with here is your team is operating on assumptions, does not have clarity on who your best customers are. So making sure that is where the research stays focused is on identifying who are our best customers and like all the nuance that lives in there. Because I can do a lot, like I'm very, I'm very much oversimplifying by saying like who your best customers are, because obviously we can drill in and unpack that. All the things that you can learn from learning that piece, identifying the segment of customers to learn from, to identify that. And then that's the segmentation. And then how you ask questions, what questions you even ask, how you word those questions in order to get the answers that you're looking for. That is the art of interviewing is... I mean, I called it the art of interviewing for a reason. Again, probably future podcast episode where we like run mock interviews or, or whatever. And then I would also say, okay, so we talked about the clarity of focus. We talked about segmentation criteria. We talked about making sure that questions are like asked thoughtfully and in a sort of skilled, not leading way. Sometimes that will in mean bringing somebody who's experienced in running customer research, somebody from outside of the team in to do that well. P.S. That's also what we do a lot of the times for companies, but making sure they don't fuck it up because there are so many ways to mess up research. It's very costly to mess it up. And it can be much more cost effective to actually outsource it, but I digress. And then so having somebody who knows what they're doing, and then really, really importantly, we talked about this a couple of times, is having somebody to champion this work. And if that person who's championing this work doesn't have the influence internally, then at the very least, they should have some sort of stakeholder or sponsor to help them push it across the finish line, to help it go from product into marketing or marketing into sales or vice versa, and make sure that it crosses and it does legitimately become a cross-functional tool for the, the company to leverage. Because understanding customers is something that is critically important to every single department uh, in the company and leads, to, you know, the assumptions and the guesswork doesn't just happen in marketing. It is definitely something that impacts a lot of teams. So hopefully that was like a good sort of recap on how to do this well. 
that last point I think is especially important because that is the antidote to research dying on a shelf, research living in somebody's folder somewhere. <laughs> that was super good. This is awesome. Uh, see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly a topic we could talk about for a very long time. Uh, but for now, we will sign off and see you next time. And that's it for this episode of the Forget the Funnel podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any questions about the topics we covered, don't hesitate to contact Gia or myself on LinkedIn. And you can also visit our website at forgetthefunnel.com. This is still a new podcast for us. So ratings, reviews, and subscriptions in your podcast platform of choice make a huge difference. See you next time.